Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 319 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we took a look at the current state of artificial intelligence and what that might mean for all of us, but especially for those of us in the legal profession. In this episode, we wanted to look forward into the new world of Web3 and what our listeners need to know about this hot technology topic. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be discussing the phenomenon people are calling Web 3, which some have predicted might be the next version of what was Web 1 and Web 2.0. In our second segment, we're going to answer an audience question from a fan of our Second Brain project. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, observation, or website that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. We also want to mention that the new version of our book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies Work From Home Edition, should be back from the printer any day now and available for purchase. Stay tuned. But first up, not Web 1, not Web 2, but we're here to talk about Web 3. For those of you who pay attention to the introduction of this show, we say that we are a legal technology podcast with an internet focus and you can't get much more internet than Web 3. We spent a lot of time in the early days of this show talking about Web 2.0 and how it was changing, how people, and especially lawyers, were using the internet. But there's a new version of the internet that's coming, or I guess as we discuss, maybe something that certain people are trying to will into existence. It's going by the term Web 3. As with most internet phenomena, the concept has been around for a while and is slow to catch on. Most of the world is just now catching up to it, even though it was first mentioned back eight years ago. So we thought we'd try to describe it and maybe argue a little bit about whether this is the next great coming of the internet. Dennis, how about we cut to the chase, and I'm going to cut to the chase and ask, why are you already a big advocate of Web3? Because it's the internet, and I love new things happening on the internet. Also, Web 2.0 is old. Uh, I mean, it goes back to at least 2004, and it's just time for a change. I think I've been thinking a lot about Web 3 and and how to think about it, because I think, Tommy, right, that people are trying to figure out what it is, whether it's important, whether it is the next phase, whether it's the next big thing, or whether it's it's a lot of hype. And so I sort of think of it in maybe three different senses that we could think about it. So we could say it could be a sort of linear evolution. So we go from horse and buggy to the internal combustion engine cars to the electric vehicles. It could be a paradigm shift where we move from uh, PC networks, you know, housed on premises to the cloud. So it becomes a completely new platform and a new approach that really does change the whole paradigm. And I think it could also, the other way to think about it, this could be something that people said, this is going to be really hot, this is going to be a game changer, but it doesn't really happen or it takes a long time for it to happen. So you could say the segue and my favorite, of 3D TV, which there was what, about 
six weeks or so time where people thought 3D TV was going to be the biggest thing and change everything. And now I don't even know if you can, you can find one anymore. So let me go quickly to the definition. So, and, so I think Web3 has, it's about technology it's about economics and it's about culture. And I think Web3, the best way to think of it, it is potentially the platform that the creator economy is, is going to live on. And we're going to have to dive into all of, all of those things. And so there are three core components that people talk about. So one is decentralization as opposed to centralization. Then there's also a platform notion where we're, we're built on the blockchain technologies as opposed to the traditional internet technologies. And the economics is token-based. I think the token-based things, even more the blockchain, is going to be the hardest thing for lawyers to wrap their heads around. And for me... I have the advantage, I think, of spending my time at MasterCard where we were doing things with tokens, tokenization. And so the concepts, I think, are a lot more familiar to me. So Web3 coined it in 2014. It really picked up interest in 2021, primarily from the cryptocurrency enthusiasts, the very large technology companies, financial technology companies, and venture capital companies. So that will give the underlying foundations and time, I'll turn it over to you to say either that makes it a little clearer or there's still a lot of explaining to do. Well, I was going to offer anybody who listened to this podcast that can say that they understood what Web3 is from Dennis's definition of it, I will give a free copy of the book to, but I will require a lot to get proof of that. Here's going to be my main issue is that is that all of the things that Dennis said are true, but yet I would not understand what Web3 is by listening to what he said about it. So, you know, usually when we talk about definitions, I will go to my favorite source, Wikipedia, and pull just a generic definition of it. And what's amazing about Web3 in Wikipedia is they have no idea how to define it. And they talk about the different specific visions for Web3 differ. And they talk about it being the term has been described as hazy. Web3 revolves around the idea of decentralization. Bloomberg has described Web3 as an idea that would build financial assets. And I'm like, how can you read this and actually understand what it is? So here is let me, let me take what Dennis said, and I'm going to translate to what I think Web3 is. And this is where we'll kind of get into it, because, because I think that this is what it is, and I think that Dennis is going to move off into other areas that I don't know that it absolutely belongs in the Web3 zone. Anyway, so Web1, the first version of the web, way back when, the 90s, it was decentralized. It was lone islands of the internet. You could go to this website, but it didn't connect to this other website. These other tools didn't connect with each other. They had nothing to do with each other. They were all just all autonomous states that were out there. Web 2 centralized everything. It was a great experience initially. My favorite example of a Web 2.0 tool was Google Maps and all the amazing things that Google Maps could pull together in one place so you could get from one place to another and see things like that. It was great initially. It then got ruined by the major tech players who used the services in Web 2 to provide services in exchange for your personal data. And doing that made it very difficult for individuals and we'll say content creators, people who are trying to make a living by publishing their content, whether that is 
audio or video or words or whatever they're doing for content to make a living from the internet. All of that money went to these major tech companies. Web3 hopes to make that more egalitarian and helps to bring more of the power back to the creator. Take all the good stuff about Web2 and decentralize it again. It's going to rely, as, as Dennis said, it's going to rely on applications that run on the blockchain, which is more trustworthy than other platforms, that will allow you to participate without monetizing your personal information. So it will allow the creator economy a way to get paid, where Web2 did not really allow that in a more equal way than what the big tech companies are offering. That's how I'm currently understanding it today. I think that's a great explanation, Tom. And I, I think as you go from Web 1 to Web 2 to Web 3, you do have Web 1, I think, in terms of fairly static web pages, which is content being put out there and your the emphasis was, was on how it was displayed. And Web 2, we kind of applicationified, if I can invent a term there, the web pages. So you could you saw things like Gmail and Google Docs. And so you had websites that worked like applications and gave a user experience, but they were controlled by that short list of companies now known as big tech. And there was a trade-off with the information that was being pulled from us in exchange for the the convenience and other benefits of having those applications. As we move from to Web3, there is this notion, I, I think of it in terms of the internet operating system, but it's going to be more decentralized using a, a blockchain sort of platform, but have certain things that we've, we've handled sort of discreetly in Web2 or as an add-on. So identity payments, those sorts of things kind of built in to that underlying operating system. And so once you have that and it's decentralized and people can work together in, in sort of smoother ways where you don't have to keep authenticating yourself, you have trust, you have other things, even to the point of something called DAOs, D-A-Os, decentralized autonomous organizations, where people can sort of democratically vote and, and run organizations and run things, you know, from anywhere in the world. That is sort of gives you an idea of what that platform will look like. But I also say, Tom, and I think this is a really important concept is just like Web 2 ran alongside Web 1 for a long time and probably still does, it's clear that Web 2 is going to be the majority of what we see on the internet for a good long time and Web 3 will be a significant part over time, but they're going to run in parallel, not one will stop and and the other will suddenly begin. So to me, it sort of is like the the notion of we went from horse and buggy, and then the horses and buggies didn't totally disappear, and and the internal combustion engine cars won't completely disappear as we go to to electric vehicles. There's going to be overlap, and and they'll work together for a long time. Well, the problem I have with that analogy is is that at some point in time, the horse and buggy did go away. They eventually went away. And I don't see Web3 taking over every single thing in the future. The way that you've described Web3, 
if we're purely looking at it as a platform for the content creator community or an, an economic platform for them to benefit, then I don't see that as being the only purpose of the internet. There are other purposes, I think, that Web3 can be used for. But right now, I mean, I do agree with you that Web3 has got a long time to catch on. The thing that to me is, I would say, disheartening and what I maybe maybe I was blind to it, maybe I didn't pay attention with Web 2.0, but it feels like, you know, you just described at the beginning, you described all the groups that are interested in Web 3 and they all have one thing in common money. They want to make money. And so the only people who are really interested in it are venture capitalists, marketers, people who want to obscure, own obscure NFTs. We talked about NFTs on an episode a while back. Um, you mentioned the DAOs, the distributed autonomous organizations. Those of you who read the news may have seen the story a couple of months ago about a DAO that raised enough money to try to buy a copy of the Constitution, original version of the Constitution. And it was very controversial at the time, and then they didn't win. They raised hundreds of millions, well, millions of dollars. I'm not sure the total amount that they raised, but they lost out to a private investor. And the problem was there was no way immediately to refund the money to the people because it was decentralized. It was something that they had trouble. I think they ultimately found a way to do it, but it wasn't something that was easy to do. You know, I see some artists and musicians, some content creators taking advantage of this so far. Go and buy one of your favorite musician songs for a thousand dollar NFT. And I think that that is a heck of a lot better than making the micro payments you get on Spotify. I see a lot of commercial brands taking advantage of this and selling NFTs of things. But I think that for now, anyway, the content creators who we want to benefit, the ones who were who were bilked out of making a living with Web 2.0, they either don't know a lot about it yet. It's just not widely available and or easy to understand. They don't know how to take advantage of it or they don't really care at this point. So I agree with you. I think we're a ways off. I'm not sure that it ever replaces Web 2.0, but I agree with you that we still have a ways before I think it gains a level of traction among people who aren't just in it for the money. Although I think that in Web 3.0, what people would say is that Web 3.0 is a potential solution to the problem of the over-centralization of the web into the hands of a few big tech companies that are making all kinds of money from other people's content, data, other things like that. It is a move toward kind of towards venture capitalists and others making all kinds of money. Okay. It's like we want some money too is basically what it is. Except that individual creators are making a living off of this as well. So I I would say is that as a creator, I can use the Web3 tools to make money and to distribute my works in some ways that are better and to distribute benefits to people and maybe to participate in the ongoing value of what I've created that become very interesting. Whereas in the Web 2.0 world, I might be able to buy Facebook stock, I might be able to buy other kinds of stock, and it might do well or it might have gone down, but I'm not able to capture the value of of what I've created. That's sort of the, I, I think the, the Web 3 big argument is, can we have a more democratic internet free ourselves up from perceived exploitation and and put the economics in a better place for the people who actually create the content of the internet. 
That said, I think there is a Web3 law of physics that for every proposed advantage, there's an equal and opposite proposed disadvantage in Web3. So we've already seen things that look a lot like Ponzi schemes. There's definitely scams. There's there's inequities. Uh, a lot of the things that you've focused on, some of them are there in, in earlier stages of the web as well. But I think it's that that platform and the concern that people have about the over-centralization by both big tech and by governments that are powering people toward Web3. And there is a lot, a lot going on in, in Web3. And a lot of it is outside the U.S. So uh, the energy is there in a way that you don't often see on the Internet. It does remind me of the early days of Web2. We got a lot more to say about Web3, but first, we need to take a break for a message from our sponsors. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Assuming that our listeners want to learn more and maybe do a little bit of exploration of Web3, how would they do that? I, you know, I'm really interested. I'm enthusiastic about Web3, but I've actually found it really difficult to find a good entry point, both to learn more and to participate. So what advice might we give our listeners? I think the problem with finding good resources out there is sort of been illustrated by our attempts to define things because I think that anyone and everyone, before we did this podcast, I went into my, my podcast app and I just typed in Web3 to see what podcasts would come up as part of it. And I probably saw, I don't know, two dozen podcasts about it, which means that just anybody and everybody has decided, let's jump on and start talking about Web3. Who knows the quality of that? That said, I'm probably going to still say, go to your favorite podcast app and type it in and see if there's anything that interests you there. One of the ones that I find somewhat interesting, and what I like is, is that they're covering the basics, although I've been sitting here complaining about how the venture capitalists all are taking advantage of Web3. This is from Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capitalist firm, but they have a Web3 with A16Z. A16Z is the Andreessen Horowitz brand. What's the other one, Dennis, from them that they do? Unchained, is that what it's called? Unchained is a, is a really good one on, on uh, blockchain and crypto and Web3. 
but they have good podcasts. They have pretty decent things. Although I will say, as we're getting ready to record today, they have a they have a new episode out there called Top Tech Topics Explained, and in it they list topics that I've never heard of. They talk about VDFs and ZK rollups and snarks. No, no idea what any of those things are. They could just be making those things up, as far as I'm concerned. But I guess that shows how much there is left to know about Web three. Dennis, what have you been finding are good resources on uh, Web three? Learning more about it. Well, like I said, in some ways it reminds me of earlier times in the web where you're you're looking for good curated content, people you think you can trust, people who write well and can explain things. We'll put in the show notes this great article I found recently called What Problem Does Web 3 Solve Anyway by uh, Joshua Ledbetter. And it just really goes through. And for me, I mean, it's technical, but for me, it's, it's plain enough language with a lot of examples showing like, here's, here's what the problems are that Web3 is trying to deal with. Here's some of the things that we might be able to do with this, especially for creators and then fans of creators in a very understandable way. So you don't have to say, you know, how deep do I need to go into the technology? And then, but it's also really good about the scams, the other things, the concerns out there, how crypto has kind of given Web3 a bad name. I saw that the U.S. government has just prevented tonight people from using one cryptocurrency exchange because of concerns about money laundering, you know, which is a, another factor about Web3 is like how much are governments going to be able to stop us from doing certain things. And so that is an aspect of Web3. So this is a, is a great article. Tom, I'll flip it back to you about getting into it. But I think that the entry point's do involve learning about the technology, finding some people, getting some crypto, getting identities, other things like that. And so the actual entry point is still early stage and kind of difficult, but it's getting better. I'll agree to disagree on that because I, I still think, you know, when I went to go and I just did a simple Google search, how to get started with Web3, and the top 15 links all started with, well, you need to go buy some crypto, and that's the way to get started. And that may be true, but that doesn't feel very satisfying to me, is it feels like the first thing you have to do is spend money. And, you know, I did it. I went and I set up a crypto wallet a while back. I wanted to see what it was. I spent $100 on it. It was not very intuitive. It was not very straightforward. You have like 15 different kinds of currencies to do. It felt like I was playing some crazy galactic board game with all kinds of different currencies with it. It didn't feel like it was easy or that it made sense to me. That said, there are resources, and I put a link to one that this one person posted a, what I think she called 100 Days to Web 3, and it was things to do for 100 days to get more involved in what Web 3 can do. It involves getting some crypto, but it involves a lot of other things as well and learning about a lot of stuff. So I posted a link that I think has got a lot of good options on how to get started, how to think about things. I just, I guess I'm the grumpy old man on this podcast. It just feels weird to me that to get into the next version of the internet, 
you have to pay money. There's a there's an admission price for being part of the next part of the internet where Web 2.0 felt like it was a lot more democratic. It was a lot more freedom for everybody else. Ultimately, it wound up screwing everybody. But this one feels like it's a setup from the beginning because it's requiring a price for admission. It is funny, Tom, that when you started in Web 1, you learned how to to do HTML from scratch, you've, you've done all these things. And so it's, it's sort of like there is a price to learning new things. And my resource is uh, Whitney Lauritsen, a series of TikTok videos about her efforts to try to learn Web3 on her own and and get into the world NFTs. So there, there are some really good things out there. And then I think you can you can kind of simplify this. So most of the stuff is going to run on the Ethereum blockchains. And, you know, Ethereum is the crypto to buy. The thing for me is that, you know, we had the uh, crypto value freefall over this year. So it's cheaper now to get Ethereum than it was several months ago. But it's still this sort of unknown. But I think it's like anything else in technology or law or whatever, if you're committed to it, it's going to take some effort to learn. And if it solves some problems for you and it's something you can see you can run with, it's going to be easier for you to learn. And there are people who are actually quite helpful in in working with you and putting resources out there. That said, Tom, I still come back to this thing is that even if you have the list of things that you that you read about the tech terms that you don't understand and probably very few understand, the fact is that if, if you're a lawyer and you have a client comes in who's doing Web3 stuff, it is not really, I mean, you could do this, I guess, but you basically have to, to learn that. It's the same way that everything else you do as a lawyer, you got to start from scratch and and learn when there's something new. So it's a matter of saying, like, I need to do continuous learning. I need to figure out how to stay up to date. I need to learn to speak the language. And I think, and we talked about this before the podcast time, I think one of the most important things for lawyers is to understand when you're in over your head and get those experts lined up in advance so you can you can get the help on that. There are classes, there are all kinds of things out there in this early stage. So you're taking advantage of everything that's happening in Web 2 that's, that's positive you know, in terms of education and stuff and using it to move forward into Web 3. So I think it's actually a really good time to learn this stuff. But it is super technical. It is a, a new language. And we are hoping... I would say maybe another year or so that the interfaces and the entry points will be a lot easier than they are now because they're a lot easier now than they were a year ago or two years ago. Well, we certainly agree that at some point in time, your clients are probably going to come to you with a question or they're going to be doing something around Web3 and being able to talk knowledgeably about it is going to be, I think, a prerequisite. And and like everything we talk about in this podcast around the requirement of technical competence, it's something you just need to know about. I will say that it's not since, you know, the dawn of electronic discovery that I've found a topic that is screaming out for outside expertise more than this topic. There's just too many things to learn here that are that are complicated. So I am Interested to see where the future heads with this. I'm not looking for this to be taking over anytime soon, but it is certainly an interesting phenomenon, and uh, we'll just have to pick it up in a little while and see uh, where Web3 has taken us. 
Yeah, Tom, I just I wanted to circle back to where I started. I think that of the the notions of decentralization, blockchains, and tokenization, tokenization is going to be by far the hardest one for lawyers to wrap their heads around. And so if you, as a lawyer, can get a good sense of that, I think you have some opportunities with clients over the next few years that other lawyers just won't have. And with that, let's take a break for a quick message from our sponsor. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. This episode, we have a question from a listener via Twitter, which will make Tom happy. Richard Smith says, I've been an avid follower of Dennis Kennedy and Tom Miles' second brain project and would be interested to know if they would ever consider Pinterest as a suitable public-facing platform. Tom, I know how you get excited you get about these audience questions. Do you want to start us off? Well, I do get excited about audience questions, and I think this one is interesting because I haven't worked with Pinterest in a while, so it was actually good to look at it in the lens of a second brain tool. To catch everybody else up who may not have seen Pinterest in a while, Pinterest is an image-sharing website and social media service. So let's say that you have an interest in meditation. You visit lots of meditation websites, you catch some videos, you maybe find an Instagram reel or a TikTok story or something like that. You find books and articles. You can pin, pin, I put pin in quotes, pin them to your Pinterest board. And then your board becomes a list of cards that people can click on and learn more about meditation. And so I think the idea Richard is talking about here is to say, here is my second brain and I'm publishing parts of my second brain to Pinterest so people can learn more about what you've been collecting. I think of Pinterest as similar to me anyway as raindrop.io, which is the social bookmark manager that we've talked about, I think on previous podcasts, it's what I use to publish collections of websites to people. So it's a not exactly the same as Pinterest. They serve the same purpose, but Pinterest is a lot more visually engaging and more interesting. I think actually it would be a great place for a public facing platform, but here's the only issue. And well, there's multiple issues and I think Dennis is going to cover the other one, but, but the, the one issue that I wonder about is what are you connecting it to? Because you know, while I do use raindrop.io, I don't really use it as part of my second brain. I, I actually use it just to make resources available to people. If I wanted to publish pieces of my second brain to people, if I wanted to say, here are some of the things I've been collecting, I would want to use the second brain platform itself. So both Dennis and I use Notion. We've talked about that. It's very straightforward. 
I think, to put together a website in Notion that connects to your second brain on the back end and is visible to the public on the front end. So to me, I would think that it would, I would rather have it all connect in the same tool. Now, I can connect my Notion to Pinterest. I can use uh, one of the tools like Zapier to do that. I can create a workflow that every time I post something to my second brain or I tag it, it automatically gets pinned to a separate board. So if... If the tool that you're using to house your second brain can connect like that, then I think go for it. I think it's a great idea. If you can't get it to connect, then I would say, well, that feels like extra effort on your part. And so try and find a way around it. But I think if you can get it to work and and that's a good demonstration tool, I think Pinterest is a very interesting and, like I said, visually engaging site for people to look at. So I think it's a great place to publish your second brain. Dennis. I agree, Tom, and I come at it from a little bit different perspective. But so Pinterest classic web 2.0 tool. And I would say this is an area you would not want to consider anything web three. This is what web 2.0 does really well. So when I look at Pinterest, I say what I think about Pinterest is it's very visual. So historically, people use it for photos. They use it for things like inspiration boards, you know, things that they want to buy, you know, pictures of places they want to travel, those sorts of things. So very visual. So you'd have to say, is what I'm sharing out of my second brain project publicly going to be that visual? I agree with Tom that if you're using Notion, and this is something I'm work on, working on almost as we speak, of creating a website to surface some public-facing things as a Notion website. Uh, so that seems super easy as opposed to connecting something to Pinterest and, and trying to figure that out. I would say that, as always, it comes down to jobs to be done. So what are you trying to accomplish? So why are you putting this stuff out there? And then given what it is that you hope to accomplish it with it, is Pinterest the right channel to put it in? So the right platform to put it in? And then last but not least is if you're putting on to Pinterest – is your target audience there or will they go there? Because what you're, you, you want to put things out these days in places that people are already going to. Because if you say you need to go to Pinterest, which might not be a tool that you normally use to see something that I'm putting up there, you're making extra work for people and they're probably not going to do it because there's just too many too many choices so kind of where is the audience can you reach them and what do you hope to accomplish but pinterest very interesting tool if what you're putting out there is is visual and and photographic and a collection of things is an interesting interesting platform and does as, a, as i said does illustrate web 2.0 now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. This is something that I noticed recently when I was using Word. I have become a big fan of Microsoft Editor, which is the new version of Spellcheck within Microsoft Word. And it's gotten such, become so powerful, it's become its own app and extension. You can install it in your browser and check web pages or web articles. You can do it in Google Docs. You can actually use Microsoft Editor and Google Docs, which I think is kind of amazing. But I was working in Word the other day, and I noticed when you click on the editor, it will give you a score and show how, you know, what percentage has been checked and is, and is you know, everything matches up. I noticed right underneath it, it now had 
you could filter out your editor based on your particular writing style. And it offered three different writing styles, formal, professional, or casual. And when you select one, one of those, it will highlight different criteria or different errors, I guess, is that, for example, for formal or professional writing, certain types of vocabulary are much more important than when casual writing is your style. And so it will only highlight the things that need to be checked based on the style that you want it to choose. And uh, I thought that was a really great way because we may not be writing our Word document for formal reasons all the time or for casual reasons all the time. And being able to check it based on those different criteria, I think is really an interesting and very nice use that they're making of Microsoft Editor. So give it a shot sometime. I think it's a I think it's a great little tool in there and, and in other places where you have something that just gets incrementally better over time. So it's it's always worth paying attention to what's happening there. So I have a really simple one. So affirmations are these little things that you try to say to yourself every day. And they could be a goal or, you know, something to encourage yourself. And a lot of people, uh, so an example would be, I am a millionaire by the time I reach the age of 40. And so you have people who will do these things and I'll put them on a, a post-it note and I'll put them in their mirror or on their monitor, places they see things uh, every day. And they'll, they might say them out loud, but they, they certainly see them every day. So I have one now that says, set the bar low, clear it and do it again. And that's something I've been trying to, to think to try to move things forward because I have this theme for this year of good enough is good enough. So what I've done is is kind of technologized it. And I use a voice assistant, my Amazon Echo for that. And so every morning it says that affirmation for me twice and I hear it every day. And I can't say necessarily I've been getting better at it because I've just been doing it a few weeks. But it's if you use affirmations, it's an interesting experiment just to make it a little bit easier and to kind of incorporate a little technology and the reminders in these tools to, to help you out. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, on the Legal Talk Network site, or in your favorite podcast app. Don't forget that if you'd like to get in touch with us, we're available on LinkedIn, we're available on Twitter, or remember, we love to get voicemails for our B segment. You can leave us a voicemail at 720 441 6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report only on the Legal Talk Network.